this is Sean Smallman. Welcome to Dispatch 7. Today, I'm happy to be interviewing Shay Stadler-Morris, one of my old students, who's currently working in public health in Barbados. He's going to be talking about his experience doing an online graduate degree, as well as how that island nation has responded to COVID-19. Shay, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to work in Barbados? Yeah, sure. So I'm 27 years old and I'm from Portland, Oregon. I went to Portland State University where I graduated in 2017 with a bachelor's in international development and a minor in community health. So my original plan was actually to study music and to study music education and, and to teach music. I didn't know that. Yes, not a lot of people know that. Um, but I, I became fascinated with development work through some volunteer work that I had done at the time. And I ended up changing to international development. And then um, one, of the, one of the electives that you can take is a global health course. Um, and I was really interested in taking that course. And I, I really enjoyed it. And I found a, a love for public health in that course, a love for epidemiology and infectious diseases. Um, so while I was in my third year of undergrad, I met and married a Barbadian who was studying audiology at Pacific University. So we're starting to see the, uh, <laughs> the, the tie in there. Um, right. and we both graduated in, in 2017, um, and shortly after moved to Barbados because she had only been studying in the U.S. so that she could move back and work at her father's clinic. Um, so we've been back in Barbados since 2017. Um, I've worked at a few different organizations, both here and and abroad. Um, I've traveled a little bit throughout throughout the Caribbean, Um, went to Panama once, but that's kind of the only other place, Um, (laughs) while simultaneously pursuing a master's of science in epidemiology at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine um, via distance learning where I'm focusing on infectious disease and mathematical modeling and statistics. So I currently work uh, for, for two different groups. One, Via Distance, um, is a group in Seattle, Washington, that focuses on things like systematic reviews um, and other research to improve local and national health care, as well as a group locally, which is the Barbados Chronic Disease Research Center, um, where I, I do a lot of other work. For, it's mostly for them, I would say, that I'm spending most of my time right now. Can you talk a little bit about that? So you're doing this work with this center that focuses on chronic disease. What kind of projects have you been working on? Right. So the, there's a, I don't know if you'd call it an agency or an office, but the Barbados National Registry, which conducts routine surveillance on behalf of the Ministry of Health for cancer and cardiovascular disease. Uh, so things like heart disease and stroke. So I, I, that's where the majority of my work has been with them. Um, where I, although I've mostly worked on the side of cancer, so I've spent a lot of time finding cases of malignant cancer at the public health, uh, public hospital, um, and then only a little bit of experience with cardiovascular disease case finding. I also periodically assist with the research center's data group, uh, which I, I find that work really interesting. So we've redesigned a database used to track cases of different diseases like stroke and heart disease and cancer. 
um, which then follow these cases over time um, to see how the diseases develop. And then we also use the data to conduct studies um, and to provide annual reports on the prevalence of these different chronic diseases throughout the country. Um, and then once the coronavirus was confirmed to be in the country in middle March, the research center was also tasked by the Ministry of Health to assist with tracking and modeling um, the disease and to assist with contact tracing um, to, just to see what was going on in, in the country. So some of my supervisors were directly in charge of the modeling and the contact tracing, um, while some of us were sent out to see if there were interesting trends related to death in particular. Um, so the country didn't actually have access to any PCR tests until, like I said, the middle of March. So before that, there was no way at all to know if anyone actually had COVID-19 or if they were dying from something similar. Um, so for example, I was collecting uh, death data related to pneumonia to see if people, if there was an excess um, amount of people dying from pneumonia or if it was similar to previous years, just because it's obviously not direct correlation, but you, if there was excess pneumonia, it might hint that there was COVID before we had access to tests. Uh, yeah, it's then, a proxy, I guess. Right, right. And then I was also collecting data to study cardiovascular disease trends. Well, you know, right now in my state, I'm not sure when people will be listening to this podcast episode, but yesterday I was just looking at the uh, COVID-19 dashboard for Massachusetts, and I think there were 6,477 cases. So I'm curious, what has the experience of Barbados been with the virus and how has it responded? Right. So it's it's uh, definitely smaller scale. Um, I was just looking at the COVID cases just uh, before we started talking. Currently, there are, in total are 279 cases as of today. 255 people have recovered, and there's only been seven deaths. Um, so it, it's overall been um, largely controlled. And that doesn't mean that they're not testing. There's been tens of thousands of tests done. Uh, mind you, that it's a population around 280,000. So it's it's not a tiny country, but it's definitely not a large country. Um, so the virus was confirmed officially on March 17th with the first two cases. Again, it's tiny numbers, but right. for an island of this size, it it, it's, uh, it can be alarming and can grow very quickly relative to the size. Um, and by the end of March, there were 34 cases. And then we we had the first death on April fifth. So early, or it's just a mid mid March. There was full physical distancing policy already in place. Everyone had masks. Tape was everywhere on the ground um, to to mark how far apart you could be from other people. Uh, temperature checks, hands, sanitizers. We had similar issues, I think, in other places of the world where certain types of masks were kind of hard to find. Right. Um, hand sanitizer was definitely very difficult to find for a while. Um, but by the end of March, the government had already declared a public health emergency with mandatory curfew between 8 p.m. and 6 a.m. Um, and it was very limited movement during the day. Uh, this this uh, curfew was meant to last until the middle of April with the idea being that, you know, if people just stay home, then 
might be able to control it a little bit easier. I don't, and then it, I mean, it also makes contract tracing easier. So you could, uh, if people do have have the virus, you, if they are interacting with ten people, it's a lot easier than, you know, a hundred people that they might interact with when they are going between different shops and whatnot. Unfortunately, these measures didn't work early on, um, and the government acknowledged that there were just too many people still out walking around and congregating and just kind of hanging out. No, it didn't, it didn't seem like they were really doing other thing, anything other than hanging out in public spaces, um, which is culturally a very normal thing. But when, when the government asks people to stay home, then it, it can become kind of disconcerting. Um, so in the beginning of April, the government actually declared a 24-hour curfew and a full lockdown of everything other than um, essential work. And this was, I think, meant to last two weeks. And we only had about 24 hours notice of this lockdown, which was pretty difficult. I remember when the the broadcast announcing this lockdown happened, I didn't even wait till it finished because I realized, oh no, they're going <laughs> to shut down the grocery stores. I need to get down to the grocery store. And we lived five minutes away from the grocery store. and even though I'd left before probably the middle of the broadcast, I was still there a bit later than, than a lot of people, I guess, because I was, I was in line for many hours before I even got into the grocery store. And this was a common experience across the entire country. So at this point, the borders are shut. Number of visitors were stuck on island. Um, there were fortunately some specially chartered flights that helped people get away or get home, I should say. Um, after two weeks, they extended this lockdown to the beginning of May um, and had also fortunately started easing restrictions. So some restaurants and other businesses started reopening, um, although it wasn't yet known what the tourism industry would look like at this point. The everything related to tourism had still shut and with had no, um, no one had any idea when it would open again. That was my next question. Cause Barbados obviously really relies on tourism. So they decide to close the borders or was it people just stopped coming? It was officially the borders were shut. There were no, there were, I should say very few planes, official planes coming in and, and leaving the Island. Um, the cruise ship industry had shut, and actually Barbados was one of the, the few countries that allowed the cruise ships to kind of stay off the coast and, and come in right. to resupply, which is pretty crazy to see um, you know, when you drive by the coast and you see 10 cruise ships off the, off the coast that, that you know there's very few people on those cruise ships. Um, and then they obviously they cycle through the port so they can resupply for their staff. So they're not full of people. They're just kind of in a holding pattern there waiting. Yeah. And they've been like that since March, I think. I don't know how they're doing it really, but that's what they've been doing. And and how has the economy uh, responded? Um, it, it's got to have been incredibly difficult. And and, and how long did the, the shutdown last? Has it sort of backed off now? Yeah. So it's fortunately backed off. Um, there, there were points in the lockdown, like I, I think a few days where like major grocery stores were able to reopen. Um, and even throughout the lockdown, village um, bakeries and village shops stayed open because it, 
government recognized that not everyone could go and get two weeks worth of groceries. So right. a lot of us were very fortunate that a we were able to get to the the stores in time and and spend several hours there. Um, like on a day that I think it was a weekend. I don't remember exactly. Um, but then also be able to afford to get multiple weeks of, of course, very basic um, groceries. Like I think we got a bunch of chicken and, and vegetables. I think that's that's really what we lived on <laughs> during the lockdown. Um, but then you could do worse, right? I mean, we were trying to be healthy while while also not spending all of our money because we, we just didn't know when when the lockdown would end. Well, actually, one one interesting thing that happened during the lockdown when there were um, limited store openings and, and restaurant openings um, as as restrictions ended is there's some of these businesses started um, forming very basic online ordering systems mm-hmm. and delivery systems, which just didn't actually exist before the lockdown. There was a there was a high demand for it, but no one had really invested in that infrastructure Um and so a number of restaurants and grocery stores started picking up on this and realizing that they could continue to um, to operate at, in a distance way where the people could order online. And then within a day or two, you could have your groceries delivered to your house. So a lot of people started doing that. I think a lot of people are still doing that. Um, since then, a few delivery businesses have begun, um, which are, I mean are essentially just people with their cars. Right, going to the grocery store, the restaurant, picking up the food and coming. But these things didn't exist um, before March, really, and really before April even. Um, so at the, I should say at this point in the timeline, the government was also really trying to prepare for widespread um, pandemic, really, for, for it to get a lot worse. Um, so several facilities were starting to be built that would be specifically used to house COVID patients and to quarantine them and help them get the health care they needed. Um, 100 Cuban nurses were flown in that would help support frontline medical teams. That's interesting because I've seen the footage of the Cubans arriving in Italy back in like late March, early April, and there was this mm-hmm. huge applause when they arrived at the airport but the, it's not just italy they've they've come to barbados as well yeah so it was a similar thing here um so barbados has uh, a universal health care system as well as a, a private insurance system but a lot of people utilize this public health care system um, and so there's one large public hospital and then a smaller private hospital and then a number of polyclinics on each side but they didn't want covid to be uh, burdening the, these already existing infrastructures. So they built new infrastructure to try to prevent COVID from entering these hospitals. And mind you, when you have a universal healthcare system, more people are willing to to use it. And so you can imagine that a lot of people are, are going through the public hospital, especially every single day. Um, so it'd be very crowded and and it just wouldn't be a very good thing with with a pandemic happening. Um, by the end of April, um, like I said, the, the restrictions were were being eased. The government was experimenting with physical distancing things. Uh, the 
the one probably my least favorite one I would say is they use a last name based system to try to coordinate how people are moving through the island. So this allows businesses to stay open and allows people to go out and do the things they need, but they were only allowed on certain days to go to certain places. Um, which, so your last, your surname, let's say your surname starts with D. Oh, that means that next Wednesday you can go out and do your shopping. Right. Is that the idea? Yeah, exactly. Um, fortunately, this only lasted a couple of weeks because a lot of people had a lot of issues with it when they didn't have the same last names. You have a lot of elderly people whose family members were their caregivers. Um, and if they didn't share a last name, they just weren't allowed into the grocery store. They weren't allowed to into the service. Wow. Um, so my wife and I actually had different last names at the time. So it was really tricky for us. And we've actually legally changed our last name. Um, so I'm officially, my name is Shay Stabler Morris and has been for a little over a month, but we haven't uh, change any contact information or things because of the pandemic. And we just use our old last names to prevent confusion. But that was something we, we, we had difficulties with just because we had different uh, letters starting. Uh, our last name started with different letters. So we just weren't able to, to go to the, go at the same time to any so of the services I'm we needed. Trying to imagine that in an American context and you've seen the, fact that North Dakota, for example, has this terrible uh, pandemic, but they were very, very slow, uh, both at the state and the local level, uh, to push mass. And I'm trying to imagine implementing a system in the United States where you can only go out based on certain days in your surname. And it, it would never have worked here, I would think. Right. So I'm impressed that they were even able to try it. But it sounds like after a couple of weeks that that was as far as they got with that. Yeah. So uh, by the middle of May, uh, they had stopped that and, and things actually started to look more normal. Businesses were starting to open up with normal hours. They had gotten rid of the last name system. Um, as long as you were out with a mask and um, followed the, the other physical distancing protocols, then there was really no issues for people to go out. Um, and so now, I mean, it's a, it's a normal thing. Everyone has masks. I wouldn't say everyone wears masks correctly, um, but I don't see as really as much issue with masks as I see as in some other countries, which we're very fortunate. Um, there's no curfew now. Um, and really, there's a, I would say there's a more regular pattern of life with uh, small... Um, inconveniences, I guess you could say, um, like having to wear masks and having to have temperature screenings and might have to write your contact information before entering a restaurant. Um, and then also borders have opened. I don't know exactly when the borders reopened, um, but now we have visitors visiting again. So regular flights, the cruise ship industry is still shut down. Um, so there's less visitors than normal. But now visitors are coming They're They have to come in with a test, a negative test. And then they have to self isolate either in a hotel or an Airbnb of their choice. And then they have to take multiple PCR tests once they're here that um, have to be negative. And then if, if they're positive, then they are quarantined in, in one of the quarantine centers. Um, and fortunately since May 12th, Every single positive case has been someone arriving to the island 
and there haven't been any deaths with any of these individuals. So this is simply amazing to me. I think you had a figure that was under 300, and that was for the total number of cases in Barbados so far, right? Yeah, um, as of today, it's 279. See, that's simply amazing to me when you compare that to the context in the United States where I am right now, where, you know, we've passed, I think it's something like 216,000 cases a day, right. which is not that far from the total population of Barbados. So yeah. it's, I would think it's a real success story. How do people perceive it there? Do they see it as a success right now? Are they proud of it? Are they just focused on kind of managing it right now? And I'm curious how people think about it. I think people, a lot of people feel very lucky that they're here and not in a lot of other places. Um, you're starting to see a little bit of fatigue with uh, the constant hand washing and, and mask wearing and having to, to deal with, you know, the quick temperature gun on the neck. And I mean, there's little things like people are uncomfortable like with that gun. So it's mostly around little um, things like that, that they, that are just inconveniences that, People are starting to get a little annoyed at. Fortunately, no one is um, fighting back against it, but otherwise, people feel uh, feel very fortunate to be here and not having to worry that if I leave the house, then there's a very, very real possibility that I might come into contact with someone who might infect me. There's obviously a it's a non-zero chance there there could be a, a lag in one of the the visitors or someone could leave isolation without um, without um, telling anyone and they could come into contact with other people, which has been seen around the world. Um, and that's probably my biggest worry, um, especially with some of the, the holidays coming up, that someone might come onto the island, initially test negative, and then they might actually be positive, but because of that few day lag, right. they then leave their isolation and then go to a club or go to a grocery store, or go and interact with our family. And then suddenly we have, we have more spread. So it's not, it's not, uh, there's not a 0% chance that it's not happening, but as far as we know, it's, it's not being spread. It's such a different um, situation to our, uh, where we are in the United States. I was talking to a friend by video chat last night who is in China and they're teaching a class of 114 students and they're doing it face to face in person and um, they're able to have such a normal life. So the clubs are open, the restaurants are open right now, it sounds like in Barbados. So it's, it's you know, that there's a system in place, but and even though you have to be cautious and you've got the temperature checks and the mass, most things are open, it sounds like. Yeah, as far as I know, most things, I think some restaurants have stayed closed since the beginning and just haven't reopened. Um, there's, a, there's a number of places that economically weren't able to survive, so they shut down, um, which is very unfortunate. A number of favorites of, of the population that has, have existed here for decades are no longer here, and that makes people very sad. Um, but yeah, other than that, we can generally go out and, and enjoy a more regular pattern of life. Um, as long as we're careful, of course. Um, yeah. Now, Barbados, you know, I've spent quite a bit of time in Brazil where they've had dengue and Zika. 
and they've had more experience dealing with epidemic diseases. Do you, do you think maybe in Barbados they've had some more experience and did that help or was that not really a factor? Um, I wouldn't say that, that Barbados is heavily burdened by different infectious diseases, um, especially tropical diseases. I mean, dengue is endemic. I just had dengue a few weeks ago and it was I'm terrible. So <laughs> um, and I mean, they, they pop up every few years. So right now the Caribbean in general is dealing with a bad dengue outbreak. Um, but I, I don't think that that's necessarily a, f a big factor. I think it was more that there was infrastructures very quickly put in place um, and people very fortunately, for the most part, complied with, with those protocols. Um, I would say that fortunately Barbados is able to do, does have experience with things like modeling and, and databases and um, is able to track those kinds of things just through the university and the research center I work at um, and the, the Ministry of Health. I know some other islands don't have some of that same infrastructure and they have a higher burden of COVID. I want to change the subject a little bit because, as you mentioned, you're in a, a graduate program right now. And I wondered if you'd tell us a little bit about that graduate program and how you chose it. Yeah. Um, so it's a master's in science and epidemiology. So it's a bit different than like a master's in public health that a lot of people would have more experience with. Um, it's got a lot more quantitative um, courses in it. So like I'm, I'm focusing in infectious diseases and then I'm also taking mathematical modeling courses and, and quite advanced statistics courses that like an MPH might not normally have access to it. And actually, I think as far as I know, mathematical modeling is something that not very many schools even teach um, outside of like a mathematics department. Um, so I chose it because I anticipated needing flexibility um, and I like, I really value being in more control of my schedule and not having to be subjected to, um, like I have a class. I, I actually, I hated having like an 8 a.m. class and then <laughs> having a 6 p.m. class be my next class. And then on Wednesdays at 2 p.m. I have a class, which is too late in the day to do anything too productive in the morning, but it's, it's too early to like fill up the whole day with something and then go to class. I, I always really disliked that. Um, you know, it, it's an online program, and I'm really curious about that and what you think the pros and cons are. I mean, definitely that flexibility. You've got a job. You can do it from Barbados where you have your wife and your life. And uh, yeah, so but, but, you know, if someone's thinking about maybe an online graduate program, what would you say to them about the pluses and the minuses? Yeah, I think I would imagine this year a lot of people are getting more experience with online programs. Um, so the the way it actually looks is because it's also a part-time program. I, I register for classes in September, October, and those are my classes for the entire year rather than it being term-based. Okay. Um, so I'm given dates throughout the year that I just, I have to meet certain things, but how I get to that is up to me. It's not like every week, these certain times I have to do certain things. Um, so as an example, um, I have a group assignment that runs through February. I have another assignment due in March. 
I have exams in June and a thesis due in September. So obviously I have to get through the materials. I have to have good understanding. I have to do the assignments and have them turned in before those due dates. But how I get to there is up to me and I'm able to, you know, like this week I haven't spent very much time on schoolwork. But next week I might be able to spend a lot more time or I might be able to focus a weekend or an evening. Um, and so I would, I would say that this flexibility is probably the biggest advantage. Um, and then obviously we have specific times, like if there's a lecture, they're, they're not, uh, they're not very common. They, it's not like they happen every week, um, maybe once a month or twice a month at most. Um, and then if there's any group projects, we have kind of tighter dates and deadlines and times that we have to be available. But the program is also really good at accommodating a cohort that literally exists across the entire world. Um, and sometimes schedules that are not nearly as flexible as mine. So a lot of my, my classmates are, are medical doctors who work all day and might only be able to put in half an hour every night towards, towards this degree. But they also want to be, um, to be able to do research, which is why they're, they're studying the, uh, these classes and these materials and, and working on these degrees. Um, and then there's online lectures, there's readings, textbooks, a lot of the, the normal things that a traditional in-person program would see. Um, but it obviously requires a, a lot more self-motivation. So this could be a pro or a con, I would say. For me, right. it's, a, it's definitely a pro because I'm, I'm self-motivated. It's something I'm interested in. It's, it's directly related to the work I do. It's what I want to dedicate my life to. Um, but I know for some learners, this could be very difficult to, to self-motivate. Um, uh, it takes a lot more to be motivated to just sit down and study, or maybe it takes a couple hours to get in the groove of things. Um, and then we have online forums and WhatsApp groups, and we have access to professors and things. So any questions we have are answered. Um, I would say the biggest disadvantage, though, is obviously not having the physical space. Um, so I think a lot of people, this might be a, a deal breaker. Um, and so it requires a lot more effort to do things like networking or to reach out to classmates or professors it takes a little bit more effort. Um, and then obviously a large part of graduate school is the connections you make. Um, and it just frankly is easier if you have to be at the same location at the same right. time, multiple times a week with a lot of other with, with your cohort. Um, not to say that these things aren't impossible. So my cohort uh, has a large number of people that actively engage in discussion on WhatsApps and, and emails and different forums. And we have Zoom calls to, to just talk. And sometimes we're discussing the materials. Sometimes we're just talking about what's going on in the world. So obviously we, we spend a lot of time talking about COVID because we all work in, in the healthcare field. <laughs> Um, but yeah. sometimes, um, like my wife is pregnant, so a number of us have been talking about what it's like to to be expecting a baby and how exciting that is and things like that. Um, and honestly, if I if I had to compare now to when I was an undergrad, I would say I've built a stronger network now, just because I've put a lot of effort into it than when I was in undergrad. Um, I think the network that I formed was, was quite weak during undergrad. 
I'm biased because, you know, I teach entirely online. Um, and it is a challenge and it's harder to engage people, but people still can form really powerful relationships online. And it doesn't just, doesn't just happen in online classes. It could be with gaming or all kinds of other online mm-hmm. encounters. So it's interesting to hear that. And it must be kind of intriguing for you because you've got people in your classes from all over the world. So you've kind of got a global vision in your classes. Yeah, definitely. And we, we talk about the experiences that we're all having in different countries throughout the world um, and just learning from each other. Um, obviously, people who might have a little bit more um, say in some of their, their local programs or might be heading a department are using some of the experiences across the world that they just they wouldn't have had access to if they were looking insular. Um, so one of the challenges that faces all graduate students uh, in a thesis program is defining your thesis topic and beginning to kind of plan for your your project. And I know that's really intimidating for many students. Could you talk a little bit about where you are and kind of your experience with that process? I know that you're, you know, it's not finalized, but you're, you're, you've, you're kind of deciding on the topic right now, right? Yeah. Um, so currently the way that my topic um, looks is looking, is modeling the different levels over different time periods of HPV and, and how a vaccine could be used within the Barbados population um, to eradicate HPV and then eventually cervical cancer, which is a leading cause of cancer death in women in Barbados um, throughout the world as well, um, but it's especially burdensome here. Um, So like I said, I I have a lot of interest in infectious disease, but then most of my experience has been in non-communicable diseases, um, especially cancer. So through talking like with some of my supervisors at work and, and just looking at like, what the literature looks like and what's possible, um, I decided to branch those interests and experiences. Uh, so my experience with cancer and my interest in infectious disease to work on a, a project that might actually um, be something I could work on. It might be something that the Ministry of Health or different organizations around here could use. Um, it's something that hasn't been done. There's not a lot of people that have the skills to model, for instance. So it, it's something that I recognize I could do and something I could offer to um, my work colleagues or the places that I've worked. There's a lot of people have helped me over time. Um, it obviously could transform as, a, as I talk to supervisors at school or see what data is actually available um, but I've talked to a number of people that uh, directly experience an HPV here. Um, I've reached out to an organization that recently made a call to all CARICOM um, and Caribbean governments to um, eradicate HPV and cervical cancer by 2030 because the World Health Organization made a call recently to to do exactly that across the world. So I think it was actually maybe two or three days after I submitted my proposal, I saw this open letter to Caribbean governments from this local organization calling for the eradication of HPV. 
and I thought, oh, I should, I should reach out because I know the um, one of the the board members at the organization, and I, I volunteered for that organization a few years ago. So I thought, oh, I could I could reach out to see if this could be helpful, or see if they might be able to offer anything to um, to make the project better, and, and see what kind of collaboration could occur there. I think having mathematical skills is so important, and it's something that we're seeing during this pandemic. I think that in England, some of the early mathematical models for what might happen with the pandemic really changed uh, how political leaders viewed what they needed to do. And I think that there was an early discussion or early focus on herd immunity in the government. And I think that the mathematical models really made a change. So I think that kind of modeling is really powerful. I'm curious, if you don't mind me asking, where do you see yourself in the future? Like what kind of plan would you have for yourself? Um, so I'm, I'm pretty open just because I don't know exactly what the future might look like. I, I have many interests, like I said, infectious disease. I think modeling is really interesting. Um, statistical methods are very interesting. Um, and so I'd, I'd love to work in an area like outbreak investigations that, that utilizes all these skills. Unfortunately, it can be really hard to break into the infectious disease field without a biological or clinical background, which I don't have, um, which is also why I focus so much on learning um, these mathematical and statistical um, methods and, and skills, because it could be a niche in which I could offer something. Um, and I think even though I, a lot of people are learning more basic statistical methods, like how to interpret a p-value, um, what is a confidence interval, things like that, there's still a lot of nuances that are missed in scientific communication and even public literature where different like risks and rates are, are, um, are mixed up. Right now, a lot of people are, are confusing efficacy and effectiveness within vaccinations so we'll, I think we'll learn a lot about what those things actually are within the world. Um, in a year or so, I'm hoping, obviously, to graduate. I'll have this thesis under my belt. Um, so I'm hoping that those experiences will will lead to more opportunities. Um, it's always possible that the this model could be used for mass vaccinations of virus. Um, I would have to be um, a lot of buy-in from a lot of other actors before that would happen. But that's something, for instance, that I would be very interested in. Um, I have interest in, in doing a PhD within the next couple of years. So that's that's a route um, that I might take. Uh, biosecurity is something I've always had a lot of interest in, uh, which is related to outbreak investigations. But then even within like the cancer registry I work at, which I don't plan on working there in the long run, um, but like a colleague and I, have been discussing like introducing artificial intelligence to um, cancer surveillance for Barbados and you know, based on experiences of different cancer registries across the world um, and a recent experience of a cancer registry somewhere in the U.S. that teamed up with the Department of Energy to introduce artificial intelligence. So they're having a currently a very positive experience with that. So that those kinds of experiences would be interesting to translate here and make cancer surveillance a lot easier. Um, I don't know, that that's, a, that's something else that would require a lot more buy-in, so I don't know if it's possible in the near 
the near future. But like if that opportunity opened up, that would be something I'd be interested in, in, in working on. Well, I think there's such a need for the kind of projects that you're working on that, so that I predict that there's going to be demand. I always ask everyone the same last question, you know, is there something else you want to add or is there some question I haven't asked that you'd like to talk about? I think one of the things just in the way that the world is moving, I think having experiences with data science and statistics, like you mentioned earlier, is, is so important. Not saying that you need to become a statistician or get a degree in statistics, but I think even like a lot of public health workers that may have had no experience or exposure to it before are, are starting to learn about it, which is allowing them to, to communicate better and communicate with researchers. Um, and I think it just, it helps you to understand what is happening in the world of research and within science and even within development, there's there's a lot of need for more empirical data to, to guide decisions. Uh, so that was something that I um, tried to focus on early on, was realizing that a lot of development organizations around the world make kind of gut decisions, right. which isn't always very helpful. But if those decisions were based on, on strong empirical data, then you'd see, you'd see a lot of really great things happen. Yeah, I'm not someone, who, I do qualitative research myself. I don't have quantitative skills. But I think, you know, for some of our listeners who might be in international graduates, uh, international global studies, I think it's really important if you have any plan to move on to graduate school to take some basic math courses. And particularly, I would recommend statistics because if you're going to go into um, a graduate program, you're going to need to have some of those skills. I just had one student who went into a graduate program and they found it challenging because they didn't have as much of a quantitative background. So I think what you're saying is really true in, in public health, but I think it's it's true more broadly as well for development, mm. for international studies. So I really want to uh, support what you just said. Yeah, a lot of my classmates have had the same experience. Even my own uh, experience with it was... It was a very high learning curve, frankly. Um, of course, any good graduate program, other than like if you were to do a, a graduate degree in statistics, it assumes you have a mathematical or statistical background. Any public health program, epidemiology program, and even I know a lot of graduate programs are doing this. They assume that you don't have much experience with it and might teach it from the beginning. So my program taught it essentially from the beginning, but it was still very difficult because so many of us just didn't have that exposure that we needed in order for it, it to be, for it, for it to come to us easier. I think it requires a certain way of thinking um, and a certain way of interacting with the work that we might normally do. Well, Shay, I am so grateful to you. I think this is such a fascinating topic and thank you for joining me. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It was a great conversation. Thank you for listening to Dispatch 7. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please leave us a review. And please check back in two weeks for the next episode.